This is an ABC podcast. Hello again. Welcome to the minefield. We try to negotiate the ethical and moral dilemmas of modern life. Sometimes we follow what's happening in the world. This month we are avowedly not doing so. Well, Lee Daly is my name. Scott Stevens is my co-host as we move into episode three mm. of our Ramadan series, which is, uh, I was going to say an annual event. Event might not be quite the right word. It's an annual something. Anyway, what's, here we are. What's wrong with event? I don't mind that. <laughs> well, one of the things that you and I have been critical, I think, of is what we might call the eventification of modern life, the way that especially the media tends to sort of pander and pant after sort of anniversaries, big things that are coming up, big things that have just gone. But if you think about event sometimes in the way that it's used in, say, some modern philosophy, event is an inflection point. It's something that turns you on its heels, uh, that marks a kind of kink in the way that we normally live, and that you can then plot on a calendar, on a timeline. This is before, this is after. If that's the case... Right. Then, I, yes, it's an event. Yeah. Yeah. I yeah. like the idea. Okay. Yeah, okay. I just thought of event as connoting something more like spectacle. No, not spectacle. No. Oh, there's nothing spectacular about this. Well. Nothing. <laughs> See, what I like is <laughs> I, I can say anything <laughs> it's true. and you'll go, yeah. Uh, <laughs> come come to think of it. Come to think of it. Yeah. Hey, we should um, get into this quickly because... I have a feeling we could spend the first hour just doing uh, <laughs> etymology and history Yep. on this particular one. Yep. And I'm going to drag you into this because I think you'll have a lot to say sure. just on the words that make this up. So mm-hmm. hey, for those of you... Just before you do, I mean, really quickly, I should say that this particular episode, um, there is a nice big audio footnote against it. That says, oh. for more on just about all of this, please see last year's Ramadan series. <laughs> okay. Is that all right? <laughs> well, I suppose, but it makes it sound like this is just a no, it's not. repetitive. It, no, no, no. It's not repetitive. It's not derivative. I'm very, very confident that we're going to get into new and fascinating territory today. Okay. I hope so. Um, you might actually, if I remember, because I have in mind to do this, mm. you might even hear me recall something that happened on a previous show. Ooh. A few years ago. This is very rare because oh. I remember almost nothing okay. that happened on our show. Anyway, so uh, in our Ramadan series, if you haven't heard any of it this year, what we are doing is going through a particular supplication of the Prophet Muhammad where he prays to God to be granted refuge from a series of things. Um, and so we are taking each of these things as limbs that we discuss. Uh, you, well, really, we just use them as starting points um, yeah. for the discussion that happens in a very disordered minefield sort of a way. Can, um, I, can I point out, though, I've been thinking a lot this week about what we call these things, because they're not really vices. What they are, interestingly enough, I think, is incapacities. Incapacities, moral mm. incapacities. It's the inability to do something that in order to live in a way that is morally integral, we really should be able to do, both for our sake and for the sake of those around us. So thinking about these as incapacities, I think, is really, really productive. Yeah, that's well done by you. I hadn't thought of that. The first incapacity we did was a a heart that cannot humble itself. Hmm. Then last week we did a prayer that is not heard. Hmm. And then what's to come is knowledge that does not benefit, and then finally an eye that cannot weep. Today, though, Mm -hmm. (laughs) we do a soul that is never satisfied. Uh, So in the Arabic, that's nafsin la tashba'. And this is interesting because the word for soul that we've translated here as soul, I, I mean, there's a PhD in this. Yeah. So the word is nafs, yep. which has, as some may know, in Arabic, words tend to have three-letter roots, and the three letters here are nun, fa, and sin, so na, fa, and sa. Um, and so you get nafs. But it's interesting we've translated it as soul because there's there's another word you could potentially have translated as soul in Arabic, and it would be the same in Hebrew, and that word is, is ruh. Mm-hmm. But it's a, which is a totally different word, as you can hear <laughs> yeah. if, you, if you pay attention. So... Can I just say both words, incidentally, are identical in Hebrew? Identical. Yes. Hmm. 
but but I think there's something really important in the fact that the word that's used is nafs and not ruh. Because mm. ruh, I think, is probably better if still inadequately translated as spirit. Mm-hmm. But nafs has uh, like a whole lot of resonances. A friend of mine years ago said that particularly in a language like Arabic, there's a, um, a thing that happens that you use the analogy of like when someone bows a violin and there's the, the fundamental frequency, but then there are all the resonant frequencies that surround it that give the note that you're playing its full timbre. Yeah. This is true of any instrument. I just She just picked violin. Um, the same thing happens when you say a word in Arabic and I think Hebrew would be the same. English is not quite the same, I don't think, where all these related words that are built on the same root kind of emerge and they give you a, a sense of um, or a fuller sense of what the word means and what the word connotes. And so based on those three letters, you get all kinds of words. So another a word that's related to that, for example, is nafis, which means precious, mm. or yatanafas, which means breath. Mm-hmm. So you get these sort of resonances that tell you that when we're talking about the nafs, which sometimes just gets translated as the self. If I wanted to say yeah. myself, yeah. I would just say nafsi. Right? Or if I wanted to say yourself, nafsik. But there's an element of this that is both precious but also ubiquitous, right? The, something like breath is just taken for granted. It's just yeah. without it you die. Can I, um, can, so I, can I just pick up something really quickly there? Yeah. Because, uh, I mean, this may help, this may not. But certainly within much kind of shared Semitic philology, uh, the term you're using there for, for breath or for kind of spirit, um, I mean, the, the idea essentially is that you have, you have the physical material that makes up the body. And then whatever it is that you're calling their breath or spirit, that, if you like, is the principle of energy that runs through it. It's the animating principle. Uh, it's that which takes something that is inanimate and it turns it animate. So there we would have something very, very similar, say, in the Greek term uh, anima. Uh, so the idea is that breath comes into the body, the body is animated. And then what does the body do just before it quote unquote, expires, breath leaves the body and therefore the principle of power, the mere energy that animates it, that allows the thing to move. That's the thing that goes along with it. So then the, ter- the term here that you're using kind of self or soul, this then is something slightly different. It rests alongside the animating principle, but it's also the thing which impels the body forward. That's why it's usually mm-hmm. associated with appetite. It's often associated with, uh, with desire, but it's also something that you're right. It's both common. Everybody has this sort of thing, but it's also peculiar in certain crucial ways to the person. So there's this strange thing about, you're right, commonality and individuality. But this is why I think the idea of combine is a very interesting combination of the precious with the elemental. Yeah, yeah. And the, the taken for grantedness of it. Oh, nice. I there's, like that. There's something there that I think tells you, a bit like with the conversation we had about the meaning of, of qalb, which is heart, mm-hmm. a couple of shows ago, there's something here that is central but also vulnerable mm. about this. And I, I think that captures the notion of what, so many traditions are getting at when they talk about the self or the soul as something that is potentially very high, but also potentially very corruptible, mm. that it, it, it can attain to the best of us, which is very high indeed. And in the Islamic tradition, the best of human beings are beyond the angels, but it can attain to, to that, which is the worst of us, mm. which is low, which is lower than that of the animals. And I mean, I can tease that out in a little bit of detail, but I I mentioned animals there specifically because I want you to bust out your Greek philosophy. No heavens. Because Islamically, I know when when there's a discussion of the soul, there's often a discussion in levels, right? Different kinds of soul. And there is a bit of overlap, although there's also a bit of difference with the Greek tradition here. So why don't you go Aristotle and Plato uh, and the differences between them and the sort of tripartite divisions of the soul for us. And I'll just um, oh my goodness. Go, and, go and do I, something for the next 10 minutes. So, so sorry, do you really think you really think this kind of tripartite division helps us? Because I'm, I'm not entirely sure that it, that it yeah, does. Yeah, I think, I think it does actually. See, I mean, what, what's interesting here um, and where there really are profound resonances with what you've said is it's not as if the human is ab initio bestial. 
it's not that from the beginning we are beasts or we are corrupted and we need to be sort of teased or schooled out of a condition of where we belong to the state of nature and then set on a higher path. I think the way that you've laid things out is really interesting because you're right that there is a kind of preciousness that's there from the beginning. There is an inclination and a longing for what could be called, what might be called, what others might call transcendence. And that what then needs to be cultivated, if you like, is, is the proper desires, the proper appetites to go along with it. The idea being that there are ways in which the self can go wrong by having the wrong thing dangled in front of it. And that if the wrong thing gets dangled in front of it and that thing that gets dangled is taken to be the goal of life or that which I really want and the desires, if you like, attached to that, then all sorts of terrible consequences in human life can go along with it. So that the merely... It's not just the dangling, it's the response to the dangling. That's right. That, that, that's right. But Which sort of, in a way, brings you to fasting, which is where the yeah. Ramadan series kicks in, right? It's not yeah, that excellent. things are not dangled in front of you. And it's not even the it, appetites or the longing for food or the need for food is a bad thing. But rather, if that thing which is meant to be fuel to give us the capacity to do that which is of, say, greater value to human life, when that then becomes the, the ultimate instead of the merely penultimate, then you find that the desires, the longings, the appetites become very quickly disordered in the sense of not being given their proper order in the course of things. Yeah, which is why when you look at the particular fasting that happens in Ramadan, it's, it's the most elemental things that are foregone. Hmm. Right? It's, it's food, drink, sex during daylight hours. So the, these are the things without which human beings simply don't survive as a species or even really as individuals. Um, and yet it's those precise things. It's those things that are being dangled, that are being controlled, that are being resisted for a time or really not resisted, delayed is probably a better word that makes up the nature of the fast. Um, it, but you really don't want to do the Greek thing. I mean, I couldn't have given you a, a yeah, clear but... invitation. I just don't think it gets us quite as far as you as you think, and and, and maybe something we can pick up more fully with with our guest a little later. But can I just put one other thing into this that I think is maybe helpful? Um, there is something about about the human that strains against the limits of things. Um, I mean, this is something that Immanuel Kant saw very very clearly that there is something about the human that is insufferably, that is constantly restless because the senses, while they are uh, satisfied by what Kant would call the, the intelligible world, uh, the sensual world, the senses are also always straining beyond that to look for something. So this, this is where Kant talked about the infuriating quality of what he called the sublime that which is beyond the sensual, which, which the soul sometimes yearns for, but which we can't think about in terms other than the terms that we use to evaluate the visible world all around us. And so what it means is you have this, you have this kind of condition and it's something that pops up in philosophy again and again and again. I mean, it's there in Plato, it's there in Aristotle, it's there in Immanuel Kant, it's critiqued by someone like Montaigne, which I want to come back to a little bit later. But it's almost as if there's something about us where we have a longing and because it's directed towards that which can't be satisfied, it means that all of the things that we put in the place of that longing almost end up being overwhelmed by it. So it means that we long for something which is beyond the mere needs of the body or beyond the sight, but we can't think about its satisfaction apart from the limited things that we often indulge in. And so it means that for, again, someone like Kant, and you, you have resonances of this in Aristotle as well, every time you try to satisfy this longing, it ends up fueling a condition of restlessness, of non-satisfaction. Mm -hmm. um, and what that usually has to do with is the inadequacy of the thing that we try to consume in order to satisfy that longing. Interestingly enough, Aristotle said that the first object that kind of fuels this sense of, of, of dissatisfaction is the emergence of commerce, of coin, of money within the market. Because money is nothing, he said. It's just a bearer of value. 
And we think that by accumulating and accumulating and accumulating, something ends up getting filled. But he says that nothing ends up getting filled. Instead, all we're equipped with there is a kind of potency, buying power, we would, we would say. It means that we keep trying to fill and nothing ends up being filled. And so we just get in this state of what he calls collecting without end. And by end there, he doesn't just mean, you know, limitlessness, you know, sort of constantly returning, but he but means purpose. Purpose, that yes, end. yes. Yeah. There's no point to it. Yeah, which takes us to the second half of the formulation, nafsina hmm. tashba. So tashba is that. So shaba is like a, a vessel that is full right to its capacity, but like not a, you know, when you fill a cup up or something and you can see the skin of the water just in a sort of parabolic. Yeah. Um, shape just over the top, but it hasn't overflowed. Hmm. That, that's shabbat. <laughs> so if, if something is la tashbat, cannot be fulfilled, then it never reaches that point. That's, so it's like imagine a, an infinite vessel where the, the top just keeps getting higher and higher. That's the nature of, what, of what's being described here or what in you know, more modern parlance you might call the sort of the hedonic treadmill. Right? This, yeah, nice. this sort of thing where... Um, the acquisition of something merely leads to a desire for its further acquisition or for the acquisition of something else to a similar degree or whatever. That, but that, but that this is a condition of the soul. This is, I think, what's interesting here. That's why, I mean, from what you're saying, I mean, you clearly don't want to do the Greek thing, so I will. That it sounds like you're, you'd find Plato's formulation more relevant than Aristotle's because Aristotle's... I thinking of a soul in sort of three parts where there's a, a vegetative mm-hmm. soul, then there's an animal soul, and then there's a rational soul. And they, they seem to exist in a certain hierarchy. And the human being possesses a rational soul, but, and that, that therefore underscores that there's a, you know, a highness to, to human existence. Whereas the platonic division where there's reason and there's, what would you call it, spirit? Mm-hmm. And then there's the appetitive soul. And these things coexist. And really what we're talking about is balance. Mm, that's right between these things, would you say that's a, that's a more useful formulation for the kind of thing we're gesturing towards here, that where a soul is incapable of being satisfied, where really what it just wants is more and more and more, then that's where the appetitive soul has overtaken. And yeah. the, the reason and the spirit just simply have, they're, they're, they're not doing their job sufficiently. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Look, uh, here's, here's what I'll accept. I'll accept that that is a, um, in a very short space of time, it's an accurate description of a particular understanding of the divisions of the soul uh, within Platonic and some forms of Aristotelian thought. Uh, I mean, one of the things I suppose that goes along with that is that reason for Plato and certain forms of habit or cultivated practice for Aristotle is meant to help us get on top of our desires, on top of our appetites. And when that doesn't happen, I mean, it's really interesting that for both Plato, but particularly for Aristotle, I mean, it's something that they both share, but Aristotle, I think, was the one who really stressed it. One of the worst forms of vice that can overtake a person is to be without the ability to be satisfied. Uh, the translation that I remember first coming across when I first started studying this was incontinent, the inability to control oneself, to discipline oneself. Mm-hmm. Um, so the great Greek vices are the vices of, here I'll just do the Greek terms, of pleonexia, which is the desire for more and more and more and more without a clear sense of why. There's acrasia, mm-hmm which usually goes along with that, um, but it tends to have something to do with desire without self-control. And then there's the worst of them all, which is the Greek term epithumia, which really is to be a slave to one's desires. We would probably cast it more almost in terms of addiction now. So it's one's desires ends up uh, ruling your life, overwhelming. Does it? Let me just ask you on that. Does it have to be addiction? No. Or can it be an organizing principle? Because yes. yes, that's right. Because I think that's where this gets really interesting in our time is that we build societies and certainly economies on that principle. Mm. I mean, this was a really crucial critical point that the moral philosopher Alistair McIntyre made, that one of the great vices, one of the great kind of paradoxes 
of a Western world that has supposedly been forged in the kiln of Christianity and a kind of Christian moral ordering, uh, namely the West, has taken the arch vice in the ancient world and elevated to your right, to a kind of organizing principle where you have such thing as built-in obsolescence and the kind of constant fueling of the desire for uh, ever more, ever more in order to make the economy work in the first place. Do you know, it's, we had this conversation uh, off air, which I love to bring on air because it's not very well formulated mm. by me, but um, where we're talking about how all the political ideologies of, say, the 20th century, there's a particular one of the seven deadly sins that it, it's based on. That's right, <laughs> so that's right. Capitalism was based on greed and so and that's the, the deadly sin that it embodies, whereas mm. communism is based on the deadly sin of envy. Mm. Nice. And we try to tease out various other ones, I think. But as you say that, maybe it's not greed or greed alone that capitalism is based on, but gluttony. Yeah, that's right. That's exactly right. That's yeah. exactly right. Is it more gluttony than greed or is it both? Uh, I, I like the idea of, of, of gluttony in the sense that whatever one eats simply makes one more hungry. Yeah. Uh, whatever one gets is just the harbinger or the placeholder for whatever it is that comes after. Have you picked up, though, a certain reticence in my voice, Willie? <laughs> About... Yeah. Because I've tried to flog you over the head I know, several times. I know, I know, I know. So, so here's, here's my thing, though. And this probably also reflects an ongoing conversation the two of us have about transcendence versus imminence, about the overall direction of one's life uh, towards the transcendent, towards the divine, uh, versus, oh, it doesn't necessarily have to be versus, but it can often work out this way, versus the imminent, that which is most immediately, directly before us. One of the things I find so interesting as I've been kind of thinking more and sort of preparing myself, I've been carving up, Waleed, for this particular episode, <laughs> um, is, that, is that for someone like Montaigne, the great 16th, 17th century French, is he a philosopher? I'm not sure, but he's certainly philosophically influenced. One of the things that he was really critical of, he, he said that if there's any principle of perversity within the human life, it comes down to the imagination because the imagination is what makes us restless. It makes us unsettled. It takes us beyond what we have and makes us envious and gluttonous of what we don't have. And he says that oftentimes, so, so the imagination is the thing that, that turns us away from that which is most directly in front of us and that which most directly deserves our care and our attention. And he says that that, he often refers to it in terms of a straight line that propels us from where we are and that holds out some promise beyond where we are and who we are. And he connects that to certain things which, which ordinarily I wouldn't have necessarily connected it to. So one is avarice, which is very, it's the equivalent, isn't it, of gluttony, um, the desire for more and more, the longing for what one does not have. But Montaigne also connected it to ambition, which is something, for instance, Aristotle never would have done. Ambition is the thing that, drives the hero to courage in battle. The longing for honor and for renown is the thing that impels the magnanimous man uh, to try to do things, great feats, um, that will then lead people to kind of wonder. At... It's ambition for what? Okay, exactly. So there could be ambition for great things, but of course within Greek thought, ambition for great things and ambition for personal honor are not, let's just say they're not necessarily disconnected. The achievement of great things and the yeah. honor that one receives as a result of doing that. But there's ambition for, for a great purpose. Yes, yes. That's a different thing, right? Look, that's right. And I think you and I both wonder at people who through a kind of drivenness in their life, whether it be in music or in sport or in art, have achieved things that are beyond kind of the capabilities of we mortals. And yet you also realize that part and parcel of that ambition is often leaving those that have most immediately been given to them to care for, often leaving a kind of collateral damage around them. And this is the thing that Montaigne was really concerned about. For him, 
the most precious thing is what could be called a kind of imminent contentment. So not yep. always being driven beyond oneself, but recognizing what is there most immediately at hand. Seeing, for instance, the value, and for, for Montaigne, the most precious thing in the world is not just the care of the soul through things like reading and quietness and stillness and certain forms of withdrawal and certain forms of just kind of being immediately present to whatever presents itself in human life. But friendship is the most valuable thing of all for Montaigne. And friends are those little tokens of transcendence that exist beyond, uh, beyond what we necessarily need in order to live. These are, I mean, friends that exist for their own sake and that drive us beyond our mere satisfactions and give us moments of light and life and recognition and challenge. And these are the things that for, for Montaigne are most precious of all, and yet they are most immediately at hand. And what he was always concerned about is these moments of avarice that drive us beyond where we are, and these moments of ambition that make us restless and want to achieve something great, these often kind of derange or derail our lives and make us profoundly, inescapably unsatisfied and restless. And yet, were we ever to be satisfied with what it is we think we want, that would end up being something kind of perverse as well. Um, Do you know what's interesting hearing this? Hmm. Um, and we'll get to our guest in a sec. I think this takes us to spe quite specifically the Quranic division of the soul. Yeah, interesting. There's there's the division of the soul that certain Muslim scholars spoke about. And Al-Ghazali, who we referenced last year yeah. in our series, um, was very much similarly to, similar to the Platonic divisions, the way he spoke about it. But if you just confine yourself strictly to Quranic terms, it's not divided in a sort of animalistic, appetitive sort of a thing. It's more about a level. So mm. you have the sort of, the nafsan amara bisur, which is like the soul that, that commands you to evil, like it impels you towards that which is bad. Mm. But then you've got the nafsan lawama, which is the, like this is probably where a lot of people are, where it's the, it's the self-reproaching soul. It's the soul that um, is at the stage where it recognizes the good and the bad and it falls into the bad, but it reproaches itself for that and it tries to orientate itself. And there's this sort of um, toing and froing that happens within the self. But the ultimate is the, the nafsan mutama inna, which is the tranquil soul, hmm. Hmm. where there's just nothing, nothing really bothers this soul because it's, it's at peace with itself, with its, with its circumstances, and ultimately with its creator, that's the, which is the source of that tranquility. That sounds a bit closer to me to the kind of thing Montaigne is trying to... Mm, I think that's right. ...get to. Because there, yeah. there it's contentment, but not contentment that tips over into indolence or laziness. No, no. It's, in it's, fact, it might, it might be a contentment that impels action. That's right. I but it's an right. action that's directed in a particular way. Yeah. And what it definitely isn't is a soul that... That can't be satisfied. Yeah. That can never be fulfilled because it's actually fulfilled at every moment. Hmm. Yeah. All right. Well, we solved that. Hey, just before we bring in our guest, though, mm. I did warn over the last two episodes that I was going to have a little bit of a literary insert in each one. Oh, yes, you did. That we do. I have one. Um, it's a little bit unusual. Bear with me. But I think it captures something fundamental to what we've been talking about. Uh, it's from uh, Ian McEwan's novel Saturday from 2005, widely regarded as one of his worst novels. I disagree. I actually think it's a <laughs> masterpiece. It takes place, the setting of the novel is essentially a day and a half in the life of a surgeon named Henry Perrone. Um, he's an unusual man, and I can't help but see in him a kind of reflection of some of Ian McEwan's own kind of dispositions. This is a passage. He's come home late at night after a long shift at the hospital. He lays alongside his wife, Rosalind, in bed. This is the passage. Henry Perrone lies still, waiting for sleep. By contemporary standards, by any standards, it's perverse that he's never tired of making love to Rosalind, never been seriously tempted by the opportunities that have drifted his way through the generous logic of the medical hierarchy. Here's the crucial line, Willie. When he thinks of sex, he thinks of her. And just, just imagine if we 
flip that around. It's almost the perfect expression of the soul that can never be satisfied. Mm. The perverse way would be when he thinks of her, he thinks of sex. That means that sex would be the primary drive and that Mm. she is then just the placeholder. Instead, when he thinks of sex, he thinks of her. Who else could love him so knowingly with such warmth and teasing humor or accumulate so rich a past with him? By some accident of character, it's familiarity that excites him more than novelty. He suspects there's something numbed or deficient or timid in himself. Where's his curiosity? What's wrong with him? But there's nothing he can do about himself. He meets the occasional glance of an attractive woman with a bland and level smile. This fidelity might look like virtue or doggedness, but it's neither of these because he exercises no real choice. This is what he has to have. Possession belonging, repetition. I think there's something about that, Willie, that is really precious because there is a satisfaction in oneself, but also a devotion to what is at hand. And I think you're right that there's something about the inner state of tranquility, of satisfaction, of serenity that enables, in this case, Henry to be satisfied with what is most immediately around him. So it's not that the longing for transcendence is necessarily always at the expense of that which is imminent, that which is close to us. But as soon as you have those things disordered, such that we treat things that are close to us with a kind of intensity that is borne out by our longing for that which is beyond them, such that they become sacrificed, if you like, to our desires because they can't be satisfied, then you can feel at that moment, can't you, that there's a kind of disordering of desires that take place here. It's the tranquility that lets us be at peace with those around us and to refuse to reduce them to their use value to our benefit. Yeah. And so ironically, it's the feeding of desires that creates the unrest. Perfect. Exactly right. Yeah. Time for us to get to a guest, surely. Yes. And our guest is Richard College. He's Associate Professor of Philosophy and Associate Dean of Learning and Teaching in the Faculty of Theology and Philosophy at Australian Catholic University. Any guest on this particular show has got to bring their theological and philosophical guns with them. And Richard, uh, you've certainly brought both. Thanks so much for joining us on The Minefield. Great to be here. Thank you, Scott. We've talked for way too long. Pick us up. Where, where should we go from here? So many threads to pull on here. One thing that struck me, I guess I'll start with this, thinking about this topic, was the way that this whole problem of restless desire is laid into so much ancient Greek thought. But from this, the whole history of of Western thought sort of pulls out particular threads of that in, in interesting ways. And not just Western thought, of course, you know, this goes back to... You go back to the Vedic literature, you can go mm. back back to um, Chinese traditions uh, as, as well, that this is a problem that we feel very deeply. And in many ways, it really does pull in so many problems about what it is to be human. W- one thing I, I thought I, I might start with is, well, it's invitation actually to, to talk about Plato, but I want to do so by, by bringing in the, a bit of backstory here. Um, the whole tripartite model that has the, you know, the, the two horses and the, and the intellect trying to sort of rein them all in and so forth. I often think back to, you know, one of the horses, the whole Homeric background to that. So this whole idea of thumos, um, we'll, you were talking about a little bit earlier, this whole idea of ambition and honour and so mm. forth, connected to the idea of pneuma, of spirit. Uh, presumably that's why we translate it in that, in that way. The Homeric hero out in the battlefield dying breathes out his spirit at the point of death, which is that kind of that, that spirit and is that sort of sense of honour and so forth. It's what drives the Homeric hero in terms of the, sort of the emotional drivenness, but also in terms of really his whole being, really. And in a sense, that is one of the horses that intellect is trying to sort of rein in, um, in, in terms of that platonic model of the of the soul. The other one, of course, is uh, epithumia, that's sort of the, the appetitive soul. So mm. it's almost like the, the chest on one hand, the gut on the other, and the head sort of the, the trying to rein them in and sort of to drive the, the soul in a particular direction. Why I think this is really important, though, is it, it really does talk to the internal rivenness of what it is to be human. Um, but it's interesting when Aristotle, and again, while he picked up on this, um, Aristotle's slightly different model where there is still that sort of uh, division between intellect on one hand and, and desire on the other. But Aristotle talks about desire in terms of three three aspects. Yes, there is, is uh, 
Thumos again, that sort of sense of uh, honour and ambition. There is again appetite, epithumia, but there's also, I think it's, um, we normally translate it as a kind of a, a sense of desire for the good for its own sake, mm. bulesis. So that to me then raises another thing too that, and I think it was implicit in, in what you were talking about a number of times there um, in your conversation with Walid, that whole sense of eros in Plato, which comes through very much in, in the symposium it's given. It's, you know, it's classic formulation there, it seems, where to be human is to be internally riven. But in a sense, to try and understand that, there is a kind of an impoverishedness to being, in, to being human. But we are not simply poor. We're not simply decadent. We have had a taste of transcendence, maybe mm. to, to use that word, and we desire it. We, we love it. That's erotic love in this sort of sense. And so it's not simply that we have these kind of, you know, decadent um, desires that, that we're enslaved to. It's not simply that we have this heroic um, sense of wanting to realise our ambitions and so forth. But we also have this purest sense that maybe Aristotle talks about more in terms of Bulesis, where, where we, are, we are reaching for the transcendent. And then, of course, Diotima, you know, tells Plato about this. On one hand, that, you know, the desire for the beautiful body is a kind of a grasping after that. But, of course, what one needs to do is to understand that that is really a dim recollection of the truly Mm. beautiful, the truly good, um, the truly true, I suppose. And so all of these kinds of different senses of internal rivenness kind of play together it's difficult to pull them apart. So I'm not sure whether that helps at all, but it maybe just muddies the water further. Well, no, I think it does help, mm. but, but that's where I think the, that sort of Quranic division I mentioned mm. or the, the, the Montaigne approach that Scott mentioned become important because what's actually achieved there is the overcoming of the rivenness. And it's because those things that might have pulled us in opposite directions suddenly become aligned where things have their purpose, we understand what their purposes are, they're not overindulged. In a way, I mean, one of the things that, one of the footnotes I think we should put to sort of, you know, Aristotle's discussion of the the animalistic soul, for example, or really any discussion of the animals as kind of a a lower moral Mm, mm, status, is that they do kind of have a balance. What what they don't Mm. have that human beings have, it seems, is an ability to restrain appetites and control them and submit them to something greater. But what they also don't have is this propensity to overindulge in their appetites in a way that just becomes destructive of themselves and destructive of their environments and other animals, right? So here's my recollection from another show, Scott. A few years ago when we did a show on fasting, we had Mehmet Ayozop on Mm -hmm. from Charles State University. And I just, this image is amazing. He just said... Lions will attack zebras, right? But you don't see lions just massacring zebras across the Serengeti and leaving carcasses everywhere when they're already hungry and don't need to eat just because they've got an appetite to do so or because they want to feel the power. or anything. That's, a, that's a human thing. That's when things are not in alignment. So even animals, they, they have a kind of alignment that human beings fall out of from time to time. Um, you might even argue a lot of the time. But where human beings can overcome that is by taming what they have in the, the form of desire, in the form of their appetites, and directing them to something that's even higher than what the animal necessarily conceives. And is it interesting that this is why, and this is very much a Montagna point, the vices that humans are peculiarly capable of, animals are not <laughs> capable of. So it'd be yep. wrong to talk about an evil animal. It'd be wrong to talk about an animal that was necessarily cruel or deceitful in that same way. I mean, you you can talk about animals that might use certain forms of camouflage in order to satisfy, you know, their desire for food. Um, But it's well-orientated. What they're doing is well-orientated. Which is to say it's it's limited, which is why, again, Mm. for for Montaigne, he refused to think about animals as a lower order of moral being. Mm. Mm -hmm. Uh, The thing that separates humans and animals isn't the higher order of reason for Montaigne, but the corrupting character of imagination. I'm not sure if we would necessarily go that way, but, you know, Richard, this is right, isn't it? That humans are capable of perversity in a way that animals are not because we try to, we try to satisfy what may be called transcendent desires or desires that go beyond use. We try to satisfy them by means of proximate 
things that can't bear that design. Yeah, and I think it's something to do here with the with symbolic imagination, which seems to be a particularly human, well, as far as we know, uh, a, a trait. But but something you just said, Scott, just made me think of the way that, in fact, in their different ways, both Plato and Aristotle and their accounts of the birth of the city really bring this out. Um, for both of them, they, they have this sense that the city... But sorry, before we actually get to that point where we have sort of families that grow into villages, of course, in Plato's account, they grow into cities, something changes at that point. There's something that is not... The city doesn't just reflect human perversity, so to speak. It actually is the cause of it as well. There's that sense in which that they talk about, the, I think, both in their different ways, that there's the state of nature is the state of exchange, barter, where that sort of... Um, Pleonexia that you spoke about earlier, it hasn't quite kicked in yet. Um, and what happens is as we, we barter and so forth, we ended up specialising. And then we're, there are people then who specialise in certain goods, certain services, because it's more efficient and then that grows and then with that more possibilities emerge and then before we, we know it, we, we're into commerce and then commerce involves money, as you were speaking about earlier. And then, of course, what happens is that this triggers a kind of a, something which becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy That's because right. then then things grow and, and so forth. Um, I was actually struck thinking thinking about this. Um, I was had a, a reason to look at um, Rousseau's uh, essay on the, the origin of inequality. There's this wonderful little passage where he just absolutely nails this whole account. Whether or not we agree with it or not is a different thing. Alistair McIntyre certainly does. Mm. But um, it, it's probably interesting just to, just to have a quick look at what he says there. He talks about necessities first have to be provided. That's the barter stage, yeah. so so forth. And then superfluities. Delicacies follow next. Then immense wealth then subjects, and then slaves. Mm. Those in the wow. grip of this situation yeah, enjoy sure. not a moment's relaxation. And what is yet stranger, the less natural and pressing his wants, the more headstrong are his possessions, and still worse, the more he has it in his power to gratify them. So that after a long course of prosperity, after having swallowed up treasures and ruined multitudes, the hero ends by cutting every throat till he finds himself at last the sole master of the world. And look at how he ends. Such are the secret pretensions of the heart of civilised man. Now, I can't think of a more awful image of, of what it is there, but there's something about the, the momentum of the, of the city and the imperatives towards more and more and more, Plexonia, that, that absolutely comes through in that account, I think. So what there's is it about humankind? Well, I wonder there if, it, if we're talking about the city, there's something about alienation, isn't there? Mm-hmm. So in smaller formations of life, it seems to me what you have is the opposite of alienation. And so there's a humanity, there's a, what would Scott say, moral reality um, that you're brought face to face with. Once you move into the realm of the city, people become more abstractions. Mm, that's right. Yeah. Um, and so the idea of domination almost it makes it starts to make sense to you right because they are mere abstractions they therefore connote competitor or threat or whatever before they connote some kind of moral reality yeah so and so it seems like the only logical thing to do is to dominate can i just pick up there because the other thing that's going on beneath rousseau's account is that when we are in that condition of relative proximity and our limited relations to people around us the moral reality of other persons are able to impress themselves upon us which is why Rousseau can say that in that state, by me gaining more at another person's expense, he says it's the equivalent of me stealing something out of their pocket, which means that even though I have more, I only have more because they have less. And Rousseau says that the moral wound that I, as having more at their expense, inflicts on me binds us together in a condition of mutual immiseration. It's an astonishing... But then Mm. what happens when a person goes from being a moral reality to a mere abstraction? And me having more doesn't necessarily mean that another person has less. It means that I can then continue to pursue more and more and more in a condition of relative impunity because I don't see the consequences of my desire for more as being bought at the expense of another person necessarily having less. And that then becomes a form of, if you like, moral deformation through the process of abstraction that Willie was there talking about, the human cost of my acquisitiveness, of my avarice, is then not registered for me. I've become numbed 
by this process of abstraction. Moral deformation is an interesting one because it speaks to the, the sense in which we, we can't see the futility mm. um, of... And, and you mentioned Akrasia um, earlier on, that this, this idea of... Um, I think it was a, it's a deep problem for Plato, actually. How is it possible that we can act in ways that contradict what we know to be true? Mm. You know, that's assuming that there is that sort of knowledge there. It's almost like... I'm thinking about, you know, the, the famous story that Plato tells of, of the prisoner in the cave. It's almost as though having been released and having, you know, worked worked his way back up through the, the cave structure back to ground level and having finally been overcome with the, the, the wealth of the, the full blast of the sun and, you know, I mean, the, the goodness and beauty, to then want to go back into the cave didn't seem to make any sense for Plato. Why would you do that? Of course, to release the other prisoners, but not as something that you desire to do. And it seems to me that, I don't know, 800 years later or something like that, by the time you come to Augustine, you have a kind of a, an answer to that question, mm. this idea that there's something deformed about our desires and our will. Now, without buying into the, the theological framing behind that, there's a, a really fascinating moral psychology there that there's this idea that why do we will things? We will ultimately what we desire. What does desire attempt? It attempts to gain those things which it thinks will make it happy. But if desires are themselves distorted, and we might think about that in terms of the effect of the city or whatever story we want to tell around that, but the distortion to desires means that we end up mistaking the things that we think we want from what we really want. Mm. And so, mm. talking about your point of view about moral deformation, we, we end up valuing money above people. We end up valuing bodies over, over whole persons. And in, in a sense, that becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy in itself, a vicious cycle, because mm. we double down on that desire to grab the things that we really want, thinking that that will finally solve our problem, our sort of inner desires and, and state of dissatisfaction. But in fact, it just makes it worse. And then, of course, it becomes this, this spiral. So to come right mm. back to Walid's point about whether or not this inner rivenness can be solved, I'm not... Well, I think it can be ameliorated in certain times. I'm not sure that being human allows us to solve the problem, at least maybe this side of this side of eternity, perhaps, Pauline. Mm. <laughs> can it only be solved on the other side of eternity? Uh, no, I think it can be solved. I just think it's the rare person who does it. Mm. Mm. Um, I think it requires certain conditions, certain cultivation. I mean, we're talking here about, you know, the, the corrupting nature of the city and moral defamation, et cetera, et cetera. Yes, but also moral defamation is a is a result of a series of practices or perhaps That's the right. absence of practices that allow for moral rectitude and moral formation and moral sustenance, right? Sorry to keep returning to sort of the literal event, if you like, to use it in the way Scott mm. wanted to use, of, of Ramadan. But this is the point of fasting. Mm. That's right. It's or, an interruption. Right. Yeah. Mm. And it's a cultivation. Yeah. And what's so interesting about fasting, I find, is that it exists in what every religious tradition would have it, right? I don't think there's a single one there might be one out there, I don't know. But there's not, there's not one that I'm familiar with that doesn't have it in some form or other. And, of course, that's not the only practice. One of the reasons that I think moral formation has been such a central part of religion is that religion adorns life with the practices that are necessary for its cultivation. Whereas when we try to cultivate or, or do moral formation in the absence of practices. And people might find, you know, regimens of practices outside religion. That, that can happen, um, but often not in a very sustainable way. When we try to cultivate moral formation as it's just as though it's something from the gut, we can just kind of will into being without attendant practices that are constantly in the process of shaping, forming, etc. then it falls apart and then the city takes over, right? So it might be that some environments... Uh, lend themselves more than others to a process of moral sustenance. But I don't know that the environment's determinative in that way. Yeah, now, I, I think you're, you're right there. I guess I was responding mainly to the idea of solving the problem. I think there are... As in healing, almost as if healing it. That, that's know. right. So, so, so it's no longer there. I think mm. there are therapies to address this. And there are religious practices, there are, you know, other kinds of, of practices that look to address this issue. And I was thinking actually about, to go back to Aristotle again, that this whole idea about finding, well, let me just go back a step. There are approaches that try to suppress, and I'm thinking, for example, in Hellenistic times, the, you know, the, the approach of the cynics, you know, to sort of, 
to reduce all one's desires back to the very, very bare minimum as a way of addressing this issue. And then, of course, you've got a hope of becoming happy because you can, you can at least fulfil those desires. Um, and, and you see it in different ways in Stoicism and even, interestingly, in Epicureanism, which, which sought pleasure as a way of finding happiness, when in itself recognised the kind of futility of getting, letting that get carried away. Hence the particular type of pleasures that are pursued within Epicureanism. Indeed. Mm. Friendship is one of them, mm, of that's course. Right. But with the Aristotelian approach, there's this idea of, you know, this idea that you can have particular characteristics that you need to try and find. It is a moderating, but it's not that you need to reduce them as far as you can. In fact, it's actually advice to have too little of them mm. as well as too, too much of them, you know, and any you know, Aristotle, of course, gives wonderful examples of that, some of which are quite <laughs> challengeable from our own point of view now. But there's that, that sense of being in this constant process of therapy, I guess, while it is what, what I'm getting there, to, to, to try and address these things. I'm not sure that they're ever fully solved because of maybe the infinitude of human imagination or however we want to think about that, where we're always coming up with new ways, I suppose, of ingratiating ourselves to our, our desires or whatever might happen to be. But this continual process of pushing back, reassessing, correcting the self the therapy of the self as a way of a way of life, ultimately. Mm. I think what's so interesting here, well, Ed, I'm, I'm quite sure you would agree with this. There is no conception of what it is we're talking about without deliberate practices or without the nurturing mm. of the capacity for the recognition of human limits, of human limitation. Mm. I mean, for Montaigne, that was very much the idea. It was a very stoic idea, in fact, of almost mm. circumscribing the self by circumscribing the world in which the self interacts so that you simply don't have ambitions far beyond yourself. It's, it's a much more contented way of life and therefore one that isn't, that is actively pushing back against the kind of the roiling desires. But I think you're, you're absolutely right, Willie. There's no conception of this that doesn't involve a recognition of the human propensity for restlessness for dissatisfaction, and that therefore doesn't try to put around it some kind of regime of deliberate, consecutive, a, a regime of practices, of opportunities for reflection and mutual accountability, that doesn't try to put relationships in and around it in order to try to give some proper sense of the world that humans are can most healthily and morally interact with. Um, these things don't just happen. They have to be cultivated, and as, song, as, as soon as you give up the task of cultivating them, uh, then you've kind of you've given up the entire game, haven't you? Uh, yeah, and they can't be downloaded as information. Mm, that's yeah. right. They are not. Yes, read, that's right. That's right. You don't you don't read yourself into a moral state of being. You have to act yourself into it mm. in one way or another. Um, all right. Well, Arabic got a fair go. Greek got a fair go. Scott, <laughs> do you want to add any Hebrew before we sign off? No, you you basically did. I mean, the Hebrew terms are they they are cognates. They're quite literal cognates. I mean, you can just move directly from one to the other. So I'm good. All right. Well, that's all we're getting at the Hebrew. Then I was looking forward to hearing Scott bust out his Hebrew, but alas, <laughs> no. Richard, do you have any other languages you want to throw into the pot? <laughs> oh no, I think I'll leave it at this wonderful conversation. Uh, I was sure we were <laughs> going to get Latin, Scott. I was sure. <laughs> Anyway, um, Richard, thank you so much for joining us today. I've really, really enjoyed it. It's been, uh, it's been enriching, I think we can say. Thanks for dropping by. Thank you, Wally. Thank you, Scott. Richard College, Associate Professor of Philosophy at the Australian Catholic University, our guest for this week's edition of The Minefield. Episode three in our Ramadan series. Episode four is next week. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.